Good morning. It's good to have this opportunity to talk with you today. Things are changing in Boulder. Things are changing in our church. And uh, as I was preparing for this sermon, it was hard for me not to notice those changes. And so we're going to talk about them a little bit. Uh, but before I do it, I'm going to show you all of my cards. All right. I'm going to I'm going to let you see behind the scenes of how this sermon was created, what it took to make it. And then I'll tell you what I'm going to do so that when I do it, you aren't caught off guard. Does that sound good? Okay, good. Mark, Mark says it's good. That's it's good enough for everybody else. There's going to be a lot of like talk back and forth. It's hopefully something you get used to whenever I'm up here. Um, we're going to talk with each other. But I'm going to tell you that uh, I used a sermon structure this time around, which is known as the four-page sermon structure. It's not that my sermon is only four pages long. It's that it's broken up into four parts or four pages. And page one talks about the trouble in the Bible. Page two is the trouble in the world. Page three is grace in the Bible. Page four is grace in the world. And it'll go in that order. With every page, we'll cover a different piece. So page one, trouble in the Bible. We're going to talk about something in Scripture, a story that hopefully you're familiar with. Um, Doris glanced off of it in that we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, but I'm going to start before she did, and I'm going to end where she started. So we'll kind of reverse engineer this. But we'll take this parable of the sower that we find in Mark 4. I'm going to give you the context. I'm going to talk about the purpose, and then I'm going to talk to you about the trouble that Jesus reveals to be happening in this time. So that's page one. Page two is a real-life scenario, something that we are going through right now, the trouble in our world, something that we can look at and say parallels, at least in some sense, to Mark 4. Then I'm going to talk about the context of our trouble. I'm going to talk about the purpose of our trouble, and then I will hopefully reveal how this trouble can be worked out in our time. Page number three, breaking down the good news, the grace that we find in Mark 4. What was the grace for them, the good news for them then? And then what is the spiritual application that he was trying to teach them so that they could understand the grace that he was speaking to? And then for page number four, we're going to break down the good news of today. What is the thing that Jesus is speaking to us in Mark 4, verses 21 through 25 that Doris read, that we can talk about the good news now? What is the spiritual lesson that we can glean from what Jesus is trying to speak to us today? Now, the idea is let's go through all four of these parts and then we'll hit a conclusion. And that conclusion will hopefully be pretty much in tandem and lockstep with what Jesus said then with what he said now because I don't have any more information from Jesus saying that he meant anything different. So we've got to somehow land close to it. The goal being Jesus said, I will walk you up to the truth. It will be up to you to apply it. And I'm going to try and do the same thing in echoing that sentiment today. Does that all make sense so far? Four pages? Everybody's with me on that. Good. I see more nodding heads this time, which is nice. Russ waved his hand, so he really got it, which is good, because Doris was whispering in his ear, and I wasn't sure if anybody, he got it, but he got it. Well done, Russ. Nice job. Now let me do this. There's a fidget warning today. It's going to be a little bit of squirming. Anybody see what the title of today's sermon was? Christianity Unmasked little bit of a fidget because we're going to talk about masks. I'm going to use the word vaccine. I'm going to reference things that the CDC has said. A little uncomfortable 
Because what are the two things you're not allowed to talk about at the Thanksgiving table? Religion and politics. I'm not sure who said that, but Debbie, thank you. Religion and politics. This is going to feel like talking about religion at church and then talking about politics at church, which I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do. We're going to kind of do that, but only because I think the story leads us to talk about the trouble in our world, and the trouble in our world has to do with those sentiments. So be warned, it may get a little fidgety. I'm going to have a couple of release valves along the way that we can stop and decompress and really think about what we're doing so that we don't go too fast and then we get off track. So I won't ask if that's okay because it's probably making you uncomfortable right now to think about it, but we're going to do it together. Here's my goal. Here's the promise that I make to you. This sermon is not agenda-driven, all right? Number two, I vow not to alienate any person or people. There will be no call-outs. This is not a shaming sermon. And everyone by the end of this should land on equal footing. All right? I'm going to stick to those four promises. The purpose of this sermon is to speak well of Scripture, to do justice to the gospel, and bring about a desire to draw closer to Jesus in anyone who hears it. That being said, my phone number and my email are on the door. So if anything doesn't land and you still have questions, don't be afraid to reach out. Fair enough? Good. Let's take a deep breath. Stretch it out a little bit. Tension out of your neck. Roll your shoulders. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father God, it is a good day to be here in your midst. We can feel your spirit here. We know that you are here with us. And so God, on this day, on your Sabbath, help us to sink into the rest of your word, to know that you are speaking to us through scripture, that you had a message for people then, you have a message for people now. God, we know that there was trouble in the world that you spoke and walked through, and God, we know that there is trouble in the world that we live in now, so speak grace into everything that we do. Give us understanding, allow our faith to grow. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, the parable of the sower. Now, I've preached on the parable of the sower before, and I'm going to take a different route, but I'm going to start in the same spot because I never want to assume that everybody knows everything about these parables. This may be the first time you've heard it, so I'm going to walk through it a little bit carefully. Let's talk about parables to begin with. What's the purpose of a parable? And in this case, Mark uses a bunch of parables back to back to back, and Mark doesn't like parables. He's not a big fan of them. Mark, uh, Matthew and John and Luke use parables way more often. Mark wants to keep things a little bit more concrete. And so the fact that he packs them all in sort of says something about the author to be like, okay, look, if we have to say what Jesus said and he wasn't speaking cleanly, let's stick them in this one section. So you hit them all the way through and then they stop. And so for Mark, Mark is kind of hitting that point of why Jesus is using this parable. Number one, Jesus uses a parable because it's safer than saying what it is he's trying to say. If he can say it in a story, he gets away with more stuff than he would otherwise. The second one is that a parable grabs interest. It has to grab interest because of where the sermon is taking place and where he's preaching. The third one is that you use a parable to make truth concrete in the mind of the people who hear it. 
You can solidify it instead of it just being something you memorize or regurgitate. This is something that becomes concrete for the hearer. The fourth one is that it enables hearers to rethink the message that they picked up when they heard the story while they're going about their ordinary business. This one is especially true. It's Jesus talking to farmers about farming so that when they go back to work in the farms, they'll go, oh, this seems familiar to the thing that... And now that concrete lesson comes back around. And the fifth one is that it helps individuals discover truth for themselves. It's not just something that says, thus saith the Lord, now go and do likewise. It's each individual person will pick up something that they've learned, and then they'll apply it to themselves. Now for Jesus, he had to be safer with these message with the message here at least, because of the increased heat he's getting from the Pharisees. All around him, he has these uh, secular Herodians and these Pharisees who are basically taking everything he's saying and just being like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm going to use that against you later. And if I can get a direct quote saying that you're here to subvert King Herod, then I will use it against you in court and then you'll get in trouble. But the good thing is you cannot use subversion as a quote if you're just telling a story. Jesus is just telling a parallel story and so they're like, well, what did he say? Like, well, I think what he was trying to say and as soon as that happens, then you can dismiss it in court. And so Jesus is using a safer yet still impacting style of preaching. He's got to grab interest because now he's too popular for the synagogues Jesus begins, he preaches in the synagogues, and then uh, it's just too full to the point that even when people need help from Jesus directly, they have to carve a hole in the ceiling to get close to him. That's how packed the churches were. And so Jesus learns, okay, we can't just keep meeting in church. Let's go outside. And so they wander outside, and there they find these opportunities to talk to people. But if you're just preaching people can walk away. It's not like right now. There's a little bit of social pressure. Does anybody feel the social pressure that because like the sermon started, you have to stay seated? Kiefer, did you feel awkward coming in after the sermon started? And he's a conference official. Like that's how you know the social structure is real. There's just this like, oh, even new people coming in, like they have to walk in through this door and it's just like, yeah, but then people will look at me and see me it's that pressure. It's here. It exists. If you're outside and I'm like, hey, everybody, you'd be like, eh. Unless I pop attention at the beginning and I grab your interest, you're not going to stay through all of it. So Jesus knows this and tells the story. We also know that every time they see something in the story that is featured in their life later, they'll think back, they'll consider the message, and then hopefully in that moment, even if they didn't do it before, they'll apply the lesson that they've learned. And in that, like I've said before, individuals get to decide the truth for themselves. And the way this works, especially for Jesus' stories, and this one is a great example, we're going to dig into it, but Jesus tells this story And then it's up to the people who heard it how to respond to it. The reality is the deeper you dig into these parables, the deeper the application will be. And in the inverse, if you just shallowly dig in, you will only take a shallow lesson from it. So this is what Jesus is doing in telling a parable. Now let's set the scene for this exact parable in Mark 4, and then we're going to read it together. So there's pew Bibles in the back of all of your pews if you want to follow along. Like I said, Mark 4, and we're going to start in verse 3, because I'm going to give you the pieces to the puzzle for the first two verses of Mark. Jesus is first and foremost in a boat, 
So he's walking around, a bunch of people show up, and the same situation happens in the synagogue that happens here, is that people just keep pressing in, he doesn't have any space. So they're like, okay, well, let's let them all sit at the water's edge, we'll push off into a boat, and he'll preach from a boat. Um, it, like, there's something about this that feels like that. I've always felt like this church kind of seems like a boat, or either that or the inside of a whale, and then I've got this big platform and you're all the way out there, I kind of feel like I'm on this boat preaching out to you standing on the shore. And so the reason for this sermon, the reason for this parable, the reason for this application is that the water is significant to the farmers. At this time, agriculture needs to be close to the source of water. And so all around this scene, Jesus is looking out at a sea of farmers and a whole bunch of farms behind him. So that if anybody at any point looked up and looked away from Jesus, they would see the farms that he was talking about. And so he's followed by farmers who were once busy at work doing farming. Does everybody see the scene now? You can picture it in your mind's eye? Good. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 3. It says, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed some seed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear listen. Now for me in my Bible, that's the end of the page. For those of you reading here, does the page end? No, the story keeps going. For me, this cracked me up while I was setting up this sermon in that this is the best sermon ever. Like he gets it done quick. He walks in and goes, listen up, farmers. There's this guy who's throwing seed. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. Some of it gets wasted. That's my time. This sermon that I'm preaching right now is already three and a half times that length. And Jesus doesn't continue. That's the end. They push him boat off of the shore. He preaches those words. And he goes, go ahead. We're good. And then he gets rowed back to shore. I wish I could preach with that form of efficiency. What's great about this is, in as much as I think, man, Jesus nailed it, when I turn the page or when you look to the next section, uh, maybe not the best sermon, a good sermon, decent sermon, but you know that it's problematic when the next section is a conversation and it starts with the word, uh, where it's like, uh, hey, Jesus... Um, so, some of the guys were talking um, at Potluck and um, they were wondering, they, they, not me, I of course got it, like I understood. They just asked me to come over to talk to you. Um, and Jesus says, okay, Peter, what's your question, bud? You go, no, not my question, their question, <laughs> Lord. Um, they, they were wondering, um, you remember that story you told earlier about the farmer? Um, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what confused you? He was like, oh, the, the, the whole thing? The whole thing. And Jesus has to do it again. 
and he has to break it down. So as much as I love how short this sermon is, Jesus leaves a lot to the imagination, and unfortunately, even for the disciples, their imagination is not broad enough. And so Jesus breaks it down, and in doing so, Jesus now talks about the trouble that is existing in the Bible. Jesus says, here's what I was trying to say. He's trying to say, I am the sower, and I am spreading the good news to everyone equally. Everyone gets to hear the gospel. The issue is, the trouble is, not everyone is responding to my word like it's good news. I'm trying to make disciples, but unfortunately some people aren't trying to be disciples. And so I'm telling them they need to make some changes in their life so that they can start growing right. We'll know if it works if they respond the way that I think that they should. And he looks around and the, the disciples are like, okay, better than it was before. And you can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus going, okay, line by line, here we go. The trouble in the Bible. And the reason why he can do this, and let me short stop here, is that he couldn't do this before because there are four groups of people hanging around. One of them wants to kill him. One of them doesn't care about him. One of that group is his best friends, and the other group are people trying to figure out what to do. And he's got to somehow hit all of them at the same time. And instead of threading the needle the way he's doing now, he just says, okay, look, since it's just you guys and this other group of people aren't here, these other three groups aren't here, then I'll break it down. And so that's what we'll do here. You get to be the, the people. You're the, you're the disciples, the apostles. And so you get to break it down with Jesus. He says, let me break it down. There are four groups, all right? They're the pathway hearers. Then when the seed was thrown, it falls onto the pathway. Those people have no growth potential. The pathway is so packed down that nothing can grow due to the fact that the soil has just been hardened. And so nothing gets through it. Now, me as the sower, when I went around sowing seed, like I said, everybody gets it. And so it's not like I'm not going to put it on the pathway. For efficiency's sake, I'm throwing it everywhere, and it's up to you how you respond. But unfortunately for them, their hearts and their minds have been hardened from this constant tramp of lifelong habits. They have developed this impenetrable shell of emotional and intellectual defenses that do not permit the entrance of the gospel message. And it must be working because Jesus keeps going. He doesn't break it down even further. The disciples are like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm getting it. Now I know what you're saying, of course. And Peter was like, I knew the whole time. And the other disciples roll their eyes and they go back to taking notes. The second group, the rocky ground hearers, now, keep this in mind. I think sometimes when we read this section, we think the rocky ground is a bunch of soil with a bunch of pebbles in it. Anybody like that when you think about it? Just one person. I appreciate your vulnerability. Thank you for being honest about that. I've always thought this myself in that I have genuinely believed it's just a bunch of rocks and some soil in it. Turns out if you read through some of these sections, at least in Israelite times, about how they grew things, they talk about this type of ground is being a layer of very thin but very fertile soil. But the problem is the soil sits directly on top of a shelf of stone. 
And so this really good soil on top allows for something to grow, which is why Jesus says you can grow something here. But that growth only allows for upward and outward growth. It doesn't go deep and it doesn't go inward. And in that situation, it never deeply affects the listener in their emotions or in their intellect. It's not a controlling force in their life. And when trouble arises, they will fade from the roots that they're growing. The third group, the thorny ground hearers. These fruits and vegetables and plants and flowers are growing in a prolific garden. But unfortunately, the gardener's ignoring the weeds. There's an honest truth. Where are my gardeners in the room? Anybody garden? Who has a garden? Kathy, let's see if this is true. Okay, good. I'm going to look to this side. Doris, you get to play along too. Is it true that weeds grow faster than vegetables? Sunita says yes. Good. We can trust my source so far. Uh, is it also true that weeds can just grow by themselves? You don't have to do anything about them? Okay, good. This is great. George Knight, quick shout out to him. Thanks for having a devotional to help me with this part. Um, Genesis 3.19 talks about this. Vegetables grow only by the sweat of one's face. Weeds grow on their own. And so these hearers who are hearing this in this thorny ground are allowing the worries of the world, the weeds and worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things to come in and choke out the word that they're hearing. Because the fact check for Jesus, the reality moment is if you're never really growing a garden, then nothing ever grows. And that's one problem. But you're never really growing a garden if you're ignoring the weeds. And without a weed mitigation plan, you're doing a disservice to the things that you've planted. Soon enough, you will no longer be growing a garden of vegetables. You will be growing a garden of weeds. And then the last group, the good soil hearers. Good soil, properly tended to, produces fruit. Fruit bears new seeds, those seeds which then can be sowed again for future crops. This is the response that Jesus is looking for. This is the message he's trying to point to. Hear the word, accept the seed, feed it, and tend to the crops, and respond to the word, and you will grow fruit. From there, the last step is repeat. This is what I'm trying to get across. And the trouble that Jesus sees is that he has to preach this sermon. So something is going wrong in this farming community. Let's flip to page two. Page two, trouble in the world. I'm going to start the way Jesus starts. Listen, those who have ears, listen. Let's talk about the parable of the Boulder Church. I'm going to set the scene. There's a group of people sitting inside of a church. Can you see it? Good. Debbie actually looked around too. So she fact-checked herself to make sure the image in her mind was the one she was seeing. What's the one thing that this church has in common that maybe we haven't had in common ever before? The answer is you can look around. Anybody see what everybody has in common right now, except for me? Everybody's wearing a mask, which has just become common practice, right? It's this idea of the thing that we do in order to keep ourselves safe. The reality is we do it because we're all surviving a pandemic. Everyone is wearing a mask, and everyone around the church and in the church and in the community in the cities we live in, 
This is what we think about all the time, to the point that this becomes the topic of conversation everywhere. And it's hard to break out of that cycle. We're all thinking about wearing masks. Do we have to wear it inside? What about outside? What about now? What about in here? What about there? What about with that person? Well, when and for how long? And now we all have this lingering question of when is this pandemic going to end? Jesus stood in front of a bunch of farmers and found a common thread and went, I bet I can talk about farming and you'll all get it. What's the one thing that we have in common? It's this pandemic. And I think that right now is the easiest way to point to the trouble in our world. But I'm going to go deeper just like Jesus went deeper. I'm going to break down four different communities within this understanding because the CDC says vaccines are now available for people over the age of 12 years old. The problem is when we hear that message, it falls on different ears. There are certain communities who hear it one way, who understand it, interpret it, and react to it based on those recommendations and what we believe about them. So there will be some communities where the vaccine arrives within that neighborhood and no one will take it. There are other communities where people will say that they took the vaccine, but not actually take the vaccine. There are other communities where people will get the shot or the shots, but then not follow the guidelines and unfortunately continue to spread the virus. And then there's this fourth group where people will get the shots, they'll follow the guidelines, and the virus fades 30, 60, and 100 times what it did without the vaccine. See the four communities? All right, let me press pause. Because here's where the tension comes in. There's a potential understanding right now that maybe I'm getting from this room, maybe I'm getting from the people at home, in that I took a parable and I said there was bad soil, medium bad soil, medium good soil, good soil, and then I told a parable and I said there's non-vaxxers, semi-vaxxers, sort of vaxxers, and full vaxxers. And you've understood this parable in that Jesus is pointing to one message within it because you know this story. If you think to yourself, if I use the same four numbers and there are four slots for both, then the applications are the same. Is anybody thinking that right now? Feeling a little tense? I'm going to take no one raising their hand to mean yes in this situation. Because this is tense, if that's the message we're going for. But I made a promise at the beginning, this will not be a shameful sermon. Everybody gets to land on their same feet. And I promise you, this is not what I'm doing. This is not the application. This is not what we're learning from it. It is simply page two. Page two of this sermon is the trouble in the world. Jesus says the trouble is I'm having a hard time getting the gospel message through. I say the trouble in our world is that we're having a hard time knowing what to do with the message of the mask mandates, the vaccines, and the coronavirus in general. Does everybody see the difference? And I promise I will break it down, but I don't want to lose anybody right now. I would hate to find somebody through a remote, through their television at home, because they thought that's what I was doing. It will not be where we go. Fair enough? Okay, good. I, I, will, I will find my way to our promise through this. I am not equating one thing to another, and because of it, we're going to work back towards the promise, working with what we know. The trouble within the Bible is something that we have in common 
then as we do now, but the applications are the same. Knowing that, like Jesus, let's break down this parable. The trouble that has come with this scenario, the trouble that we have in this world, is that I think the pandemic has taught us some things that have become habits. And those habits potentially can be problematic when it comes to rebuilding a church. And so as we're opening up, as restrictions ease, and we're no longer sitting at home watching through a screen, these habits that we've picked up, depending on which community you fit within, can be a problem for reconnecting people inside of a church. So when we look at the issues of masks and vaccines, which we called best practices before, we applied them and we followed them differently. And because of that, we have differing opinions on the subject matter. Sometimes our differing opinions have gone to the point that we actually war against each other. We war against other churches. We fight against other counties. We bounce hard off of other communities. Our state being different than another state causes contention. The reality is we're all receiving the same virus, but our response to it has been different. We hear the same updates from the CDC, but we respond differently to the recommendations. And here's the reality, and let's go into these communities now. Some of us are so tired of the news, are so sick of the back and the forth with the mandates and the changes and the politics attached to it and the rhetoric that we don't even bother listening anymore. And now no new information gets through. There's no science that can't be refuted. There's no article that can't be fact-checked. There's no speaker that can't be discredited to the point that the virus itself becomes a false narrative entirely. Nothing gets through. But in order to make this equal, and because I want everybody on the same footing, I'm going to take that same argument and I'm going to flip it on its head. There are also people who have questions and concerns and legitimate fears and justifiable reasons for not getting the vaccine. And in order to get answers and to air those concerns, they share their voices online with friends through text messages. And because others don't agree, there's arguments and debates and debunkings and denouncements. And we do it not necessarily to the points being made. We start to do it to each other. And then I block you online. And then I start screening your phone call because I know what it's going to be about. And we avoid contact until relationship can no longer get through. The relationship is then plucked away after being left unprotected, unattended, and blocked from any depth or reconciliation. But there's a second group. The second group that says some of us are tired, and rather than getting vaccinated or studying any further, we just want to go back to normal. I just want to go back to the way it was. But unfortunately, there begins a season of potential distrust. If you removed your mask but knew you didn't get the vaccine, maybe you start to look at people differently who also took off their mask, and if you know that you didn't get the vaccine, then maybe you don't trust them for doing the same thing. And now, whether you got the vaccine or not, you have this point of limbo where you want to go out. I want to go back to normal, but I don't trust the world anymore. I think people, maybe those people are me, 
aren't trustworthy enough to spend that time with. So as much as I want the escape, you go into a place of retreat and then you're angry that you're stuck here because of them and it starts this cycle where nothing really gets grounded. Everything sort of stays shelved. There could be a root. It could start to grow. I just don't trust what's under here and it's starting to feel like another rock. So I'm not going to go out. So you stay inside, and the season of distrust continues. Some of us get the vaccine. We go about our life unbridled, unprotected, and yet somehow still get sick. I got the vaccine. I'm not supposed to get the coronavirus. And now I can get other people sick. And while I want something else, and I want to be safe, I don't necessarily want to keep adhering to the things that felt like shackles, and now I'm sick, and now I don't trust the vaccine, and now doubt starts to set in. I doubt whether or not I should have gotten it. I doubt whether or not it works. Instead of working to be more cautious, we become more jaded, more resentful, and we let the negativity of the experience choke out the potential positives. Some will watch this reaction happen in others who got the vaccine and got sick, and they'll think to themselves, I was going to, but then I saw that. And those are the results I want to point to to help me make my decision. I'm not going to get the vaccine. And because this is what happens, and we believe that the science is rushed, we believe that it's untested, that it's not ready for human trial, this will result in less herd immunity, less trust, and the progress will be choked out by apathy and lethargy. There will be some who get the vaccine. They'll tell everybody they got the vaccine. They'll talk about their experience. They'll tell their friends, their family, their neighbors, they should get the vaccine, and then the neighbors will. And the neighborhood becomes vaccinated at 30, 60, and 100 times what it was before. But then there's the other side that says, I will never get the vaccine. And they'll tell everyone not to get the vaccine. They'll use their intellect and their emotional experiences, and they'll tell their friends and their family and their neighbors, avoid the vaccine. And in that neighborhood, because friendships, relationships are built in good, trustworthy ways, in soil that you can influence, whatever agenda you have, either pro or against, that message will grow. This is the trouble in our world. Hopefully, explaining the trouble as both sides of one coin, and hopefully shared fairly and evenly. And with that, there's got to be grace. There's got to be an answer. There has to be an outlet, which is why we turn to page three. Page three is the grace in the Bible. Let's go back into Mark four. Here's the good news for a bunch of farmers trying to plant crops in good soil to feed their family and their communities. Jesus says this, the farmers get to choose the soil that they plant in. With enough tilling, excavating, fertilizing, and crop rotation, the soil will be fertile. But that's the thing. You have to commit to tending to the soil for it to be good. It's not just good on its own. The good news is that they can start that work today. They can put in the effort right now to affect future harvests. It's not too late, Jesus says, to get to work. And therein lies the lesson for the farmers. But hidden within that lesson is a spiritual application. 
To catch the deeper meaning, they have to go into what Jesus says at the beginning and the end of this parable. And it's the same and it's mirrored intentionally. The word is very simple. Listen. Listen with your ears, farmers, and you will land on the answer of how to tend to your garden. But listen, farmers, with your heart, and you will land on the answer of how to tend to your soul. Your soul, like a garden, must be prepared to receive the word. If the soil is not ready for the instilling of the spirit, nothing takes root in your life of divine value. Without removing the obstacles that block your connection to God, the ethics instilled into you fade. Without filtering out the chaff from the wheat, in your devotions, the crop is wasted and your religious experience chokes itself out. Only the soul purified can produce the response of earnest faithfulness to the sower. For those with ears to hear and a soul receptive to the message can respond with a bountiful harvest. The grace in the Bible is that they get to choose what part of the story they want to play. And if that much is true, then page four should sound similar. Page four, the grace in our world. Here is the good news for a bunch of Adventists trying to reclaim their spiritual discipline after a long year of quarantine. You, the members, get to choose how you will worship, how and if you will attend, how you will practice, how you will evangelize, and how you will serve as this church emerges and receives itself as a part of this community again. The good thing is the quarantine starved out a bunch of crops that used to grow here, a bunch of things that were considered sacred. There are a few farmers still left, but not all of them. And those that are here are excited to get to work. And here's really good news. We've got this new sower on staff. The dude's the real thing. He is legitimate. And he knows how to farm. As a matter of fact, his specialty is helping farmers, helping members grow their crops, grow their spirituality effectively. He learned from following that true sower that we read about in Mark 4 and watched him work and brought those techniques here to us. The only thing he needs now is good soil to throw the seed on. The challenge is we potentially might bring in our bad habits that we learn from our time away from our farm, away from our sanctuary. Some of us have been practicing outwardly and inwardly techniques of stamping the earth down beneath us, crushing the land and those in it to the point that we are emotionally and intellectually compressed in saying that everything has to have proof, everything needs to be challenged, everything must be shouted down until it's proven worthy. If we bring that philosophy into this church and we seek to work our pew-sized plots here in the sanctuary and we build community in that way, it will be hard for anything to grow here. And our community will be choked out. Because the reality is community without grace without empathy, without goodwill, will soon be no community at all. Some of us in this time of quarantine have been in limbo for so long that we've forgotten what it's like to be rooted in accountability. 
Our limited contact has led to limited trust. And if we bring that distrust back into this church and we try and grow something from it, and we do so in a community that sits not believing in our word because we're not really committed, because we can't follow through with this commissioning call to always live love, then we'll live in the reality that faith without obedience, hope without evidence, love without reliance, and community without liability will result in a withered church. Some of us have, putting, have been putting new habits in front of our spiritual habits. When suddenly the sanctuary was locked and we had to do everything from afar, we started to seek alternate ways to worship. And over time, over a year, our taste for organized gatherings that happen online, that happen on Zoom, that happen on a screen, suddenly turned into a distaste for God, for Scripture, for prayer, and for faith. If we bring that back into this church and try and grow something from it, these crops that are grown with indifference and pews by dispassioned people, those pews, those crops, those communities will wilt and they'll die once the listless farmers abandon them and re return to those farms that they built off-site. Unattended churches hold no potential for building community. With the emptying of the sanctuary comes growth in other fields. But this is the good news, and that was merely the challenge. But the good news is this. There's still time to prepare this church. There is still time to unpack and unbridle our biases. There's still time to pull the barriers out from all of our shallow practices that we put together. There's still time to reroute our routines that we've adjusted to in the name of best practices. There is still time to have good soil in Boulder. We can be known for our prolific fruits of the Spirit. We can find ourselves at harvest time exclaiming as the psalmist said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And because of it, our community around us can grow atop this foundation we have here, a foundation that declares and believes and teaches and demonstrates that blessed are those who trust in him. We've become divided over time. We argue for two different sides and yet somehow find ourselves landing in the same soil, sometimes for good reasons sometimes out of fear, sometimes out of ignorance, sometimes by complete accident. But if we are to succeed as a church, as a community, as a kingdom people, we need to come together in our mission to reclaim this farm and restore its good soil. And it starts today. Guided by one God, one light at our feet, we will follow together out to till the garden that God has given us. Like I said, Doris began this morning by reading Mark 4, verses 21 through 25. And I'm going to close with that as we close out today. It says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old coat. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. Oh, I am in the wrong section. Pardon me. I'm reading... Verse uh, chapter 2. Let's try this again. 
Chapter four for those following along, verse 21. He said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a bushel basket or under the bed and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears hear to listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. For those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Message for us today, Boulder, the parable for us and the spiritual application. May we find ourselves reaping the benefit of the measure we have been given because of the measure in which we gave. Words here by Jesus, not to intimidate, but to encourage. May we be the type of church building the farms on good soil. Amen.